Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing introduction, and you can find him and his wife at nativestorytellers.com. For those of you that have never experienced a native storyteller, it's an ancient art. It's a way we pass history from person to person, from person to person before we had writing, and it's well worth listening to some of those stories. They hold truths that are applicable to us today. Mark has a great show today. He has Maria Wheatley with him. And we're going to be talking about, of course, megaliths, one of my favorite topics. And we're going to be talking about her research into um, a lot of other areas that, that are actually quite fascinating. So, Mark, welcome to the show. And Maria. Hey, how, how are you, Barbara and Maria? Yeah, I'm Doing very well. well. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you, Banks. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, and you know we want to uh, say hi to our listeners in Rotherham, England. You know we have um, one of your own as our super special guest tonight. Um, I guess, you know, I guess uh, since Nightlight is expanding so much, I guess. Uh, and you know, we should give an introduction or you know, review your introductory material. Uh, it's been what, a few months since you've been on, but um, you know we keep getting new listeners. But uh, you know, we want to uh, let everyone know uh, how to find you and you know, your books. So um, you know we have the Druid Goddess Maria Wheatley. Uh, <laughs> Uh, returning to Nightlight, um, she's an in-demand presenter at numerous international conferences on ancient Britain. Uh, she is a tour guide for destinations throughout the British Isles and the Mediterranean. Uh, and Maria is the author of The Elongated Skulls of Stonehenge and several other books. <clears throat> uh, she is the founder of the Esoteric College, and her website is 
the aveberryexperience.co.uk. So, welcome, Maria. Hi, Mark. Uh, yeah, thanks for that introduction. Yeah, yeah and you know, since, since you were uh, last on as, on, on Nightlight, um, you became an international TV star. So uh, we have to find out a little bit more about what was going on uh, with this shoot you did at Avebury for Megan Fox's show? Yeah, it, that was amazing. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was amazing for a couple of reasons. Uh, for, for one, we don't normally get long, hot summers, and it was a beautiful, long, hot summer. And uh, Megan Fox's agent uh, got in contact with me and asked me to be part of the show, and it was wonderful. And Megan proved some really good uh, ideas about the Blue Stones having healing sound frequencies, which got tested at Bristol University because the Welsh have always said the Blue Stones are very special. And they used to have them as bells in their churches because they resonate such a good acoustic sound and and they rigged uh, Megan up to um, you know look at her brain waves and how her brain was responding to the sound and uh-huh. it seemed to put her brain into a kind of more alpha relaxed receptive healing mode so that was that was great that's really saying something quite scientific about the blue stones of Stonehenge that originated in the Preseli Mountains of Wales yeah, uh, that episode was uh, you know, really well done, um, and the, the you know, toward you know, Stonehenge, and they did you know, a little uh, side trip out out to what uh, was it's basically the quarry site, and you know they came back and uh, you know you uh, provided your commentary, but uh, but. You know, how, how you know, were, were these? What's unique about the Preseli Mountains in Wales, where you know these stones were uh, quarried? Uh, yeah, is there like a uh, unusual mineral found in that area? What? You know, is making you know, these harmonics so unique to the blue stones? Well, in Wales, you have quite a few different quarries for the blue stones because you have different types of blue stones. But the, the main quarry was called Carngodog and uh, Carmeni. And uh, Carmeni has been a focus for quite some time because the blue stones, they're called the blue stones because if you put it water on them they go this wondrous blue color 
in the quarry area, you have a lot of springs. So that spring water comes up through the bluestones and gives mm-hmm. them this amazing glint. Now, it's always been said since the 12th century, written and recorded by a chronicler from Wales called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote the history of the kings of England, like I said, in the 12th century, that whenever you put water on the stones of Stonehenge, they become a cure curative. And, and that's probably derived from the source at Carmeny where you have these natural springs and people mm-hmm. probably with the minerals, you know, uh, felt that it did have some kind of uh, healing value, which was later uh, recorded. And even today, it's always known that if it rains at Stonehenge, it becomes a little bit more healing for, for some. Okay, and... <laughs> How were they transported in, uh, from the quarry site to Stonehenge, and uh, how far is, is you know were they uh, uh, moved to get to Stonehenge? Well, I mean that's the million-dollar question. How did they move the bluestones to? Uh, Stonehenge, and it's about really from Carmeli, probably about 130 miles away. But recently, mm. a geologist called uh, Rob Ixer, who's been looking into different types of bluestone used at Stonehenge, said they could come from much further afield in Snowdonia, which is now add on another 80 miles or so. That's more of North Wales. So, the the information about Stonehenge is changing uh, all of the time. But I really do feel that you know however they were transported i mean the the, uh, professor richard atkinson's model was they went uh, by sea and then you do find the odd blue stone in in riverbeds and they were eventually came down the river avon on the Salisbury Plain to Stonehenge. Other people that uh, kind of have uh, other ideas that it could have involved sound technology to levitate the stones. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, more down-to-earth researchers, such as Professor Michael Parker Pearson, he would suggest they were moved by oxen in the winter on ice. I mean, and theories, theories abound. So, you know, how did they get there? Nobody really knows. Oh, uh, uh, that's interesting that uh, if some of the bluestones were found in a, a riverbed, it does sound like uh, like there there's a uh, the canoe would have flipped over or gone through the. Bo- it's it, 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 I, I've never heard that, so it, it, it just sounds like a very plausible theory. Yeah, in a, in a very uh, one of the classic books about Stonehenge is actually called Stonehenge uh, by Professor Richard Atkinson, and he has a, hot, a whole model of how they moved various different types of stone. Mm. For example, the altar stone, the, the the really beautiful, almost like a gemstone, green sandstone, flexed with uh, garnet, a very beautiful, powerful visual statement at Stonehenge that came from Milford Haven, so that's very by the coast. Uh, it is even today. It's uh, I think they do a lot of oil refinery there today. But uh, you could uh, you could go round the coast towards what we call the Bristol Channel, and then from the Bristol Channel you just use the River Avon and go all the way up to Stonehenge. And and we have lots of rivers over here called Avon, and that's a very old Celtic word, Athon, and it means water. 
Okay. Yeah. I think you know when we've had uh, our uh, resident giantologist uh, Jason Gerald is, uh, I guess you, you, know, you know we've discussed all the interconnected river ways and how all the ancient people. Uh, Tra- traverse the, the the valleys to get to their destination. It, it, it's actually you know, just a really fascinating study, and you know, you, you're touching on s- something that's just uh, really appeals to me as well. It, it, it's just a uh, captivating way of seeing how all these uh, ideas just migrated up and down. Uh, the river valleys. Yeah, and according to a very uh, well-known professor of archaeology in the the West Country, Professor uh, Cunliffe, he points out that there was far, far more water in Neolithic Britain than there Mm -hmm. is now. So the rivers were probably much wider. And even places that are inland now, not far from Stonehenge, a place called Andover in Hampshire, that was more like coastline. So, I mean, it's a change in environment all of the time. And if Mm -hmm. we look to different places in the UK now, they would have been swampland, but today they're cities and habitable, but it wouldn't have been like that in the Neolithic period or the Bronze Age, and especially by the Iron Age when you get change in uh, climate. So, yes, it's an ever-changing landscape. Okay, and so when you were brought in to do uh, your, your segment on uh, you know, the megalithic uh, sites on Megan's show. Uh, you, you, know, you were focusing on like, uh, was, uh, di- different harmonies of the stones at Avebury? That's right. We were looking at some of my research from, uh, it was from about eight or nine years ago now, I think. Where does time go? And we were looking at some recordings that we made with a chap called Rodney Hale, where you take a, a dowsing rod that's quite sensitive and you move it up the face of the stone. At particular points in that stone, the dowsing rod will react. And Rodney recorded these different kind of levels uh, of the stone and found that you did get these areas where you get a change in frequency, where exactly where the dowsing rod reacted. And we used a stone that's what's called in situ that hasn't been re-erected and set in concrete because a lot of our stone circles throughout the British Isles, some of them at least have had, you know, massive facelifts like like Stonehenge and, and Avebury. They've been uh, re-erected and set in concrete. So I was showing Megan that, that there is far more to stone than meets the eye. And I think our ancient ancestors were, you know, quite familiar with the metaphysical properties of stone just as much as the physical properties of stone because they were shifting and moving stone and working with stone all across the ancient world. So I think they were very much in tune with that. And uh, I really do feel that when you put a standing stone into uh, an underground aquifer, for example, because all water divines will tell you 
that underground water starts to give off an electromagnetic field. And then if you put a standing stone by that or on another type of earth voltage or, or earth currents, then it kind of imbues the stone with uh, unseen energy. And, and I have proved that with, with Rodney Hale. And Rodney Hale's worked with other great authors like Andrew Collins as well. Okay, so, and you, know, you also, in, uh, which book is it? Um, your Avebury book where you uh, uh, cover, um, you know, the healing, if you put your arm through one of the holes in, in the, uh, one of the rocks, the, the, there is a healing energy that comes, you know, uh, will affect the person. Well, it's always been handed down in legend, myth, mm-hmm. and folklore uh, throughout the British Isles, whether you're in Ireland or whether whether you're in Cornwall or or Avebury area. That if you have a hold stone, that's always been deemed very sacred and very healing. And if you, and they're quite related to childhood illnesses, like old-fashioned illnesses, like rickets, or you know something mm-hmm. wrong sure. with your child, and you pass it through through a hold stone, it's supposed to be very, very curative. And we have all of these hold stones. We have some in Wales, for example. Cornwall is the most famous. It's Manantol, and it's like a really big round stone with a huge round section carved out where you can uh, literally crawl through and if you went through there three Mm. times that was supposed to be very curative if you go to neolithic monuments uh, in wales then some of them have carved out looks almost like they're drilled actually the holes literally a hole in one side of the monument where you could put an arm through for example so that's just a few different examples so the whole stones were always deemed very sacred and you had one at Avebury sadly it got smashed up in 1724 but William Stukeley who drew it just before it met its demise that had a very large hole in it and it was called the ring stone because it had like a ringed hole in it and mm-hmm. that was probably deemed a curative stone so through all of our folklore and our legends there's a healing side to stone circles uh, that is that is for sure whether it's water at Stonehenge or hold stones at places like Avebury and Menenthal and uh, various different Neolithic chambers throughout Wales and that's that's interesting how, how expensive region-wide uh, you know, uh, practice. What uh, it just seems like there's something to it. If people from such uh, various points of s- southern Britain were doing the same thing, it just sounds like it, it was effective. It, yeah, and even in France, because it was as late as the fifth oh. uh, century A.D which is the Dark Ages, you know, the time of King Arthur, mm-hmm. uh, then the, the whole stones, you were 
banned throughout France and uh, Spain for even going near them by by the church because people used to gather around them uh, knowing that they would be in some way cured. I've had my own experience actually in a place called Gloucestershire which is not far from Wiltshire, where you have a very famous hold stone called uh, the Long Stone of Hampton. And I had a very bad knee at the time, and I just thought, well, I'll put my leg through, because you can literally put your whole leg through this standing stone. It is, it's a, quite a large standing stone, probably about six foot five, uh, about sort of four foot wide, with a, a hole near the bottom. And it certainly helped my knee. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I could walk on it a little bit better. I wouldn't say it cured it, but it seemed to, to help no, nonetheless. And so people used to come to these places to to experience their belief in having an event or or a curative aspect to the standing stones. And, and I think there is something very special about when we enter these temple spaces that does shift our, our minds into a, a kind of different realm. Yeah, and in the uh, TV episode, um, yeah, there's um, the children were um d- discussed and th- then there's also I, I i read about um the art is it the archer that was found around stonehenge the yeah. ames the amesbury archer and the I, 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 okay that's it yeah 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 he he was from uh through oxygen isotopes it was found that he was probably from the Alpine area. It could have been, you know, Switzerland or, or, or Italy. Uh, you, you can't sometimes define the actual place, but you get the region through the changes uh, in water that hit your enamel teeth. And certainly he had a very bad knee. And uh, he was given a prestigious burial outside of uh, the Stonehenge environs. And even archaeologists now, such as Jeffrey Wainwright, the late Jeffrey Wainwright and Tim DeVille, for example, say that uh, Stonehenge could have been the Lord's. It could have been the healing area from whence people from all across Europe came to for, for healing. So even the archaeologists are thinking along these lines now, and not far from the Amesbury Archer. And, and he was literally buried with lots of uh, uh, gold in his hair. He was buried with uh, beautifully placed and chipped out flint arrowheads. And he was an archer because he had all the paraphernalia that an archer would have uh, with him so he traveled miles to be at Stonehenge and not far away in a place called Wilsford near Stonehenge there was uh, a teenage girl she probably went to Stonehenge uh, for healing and she could have come from a a variety of places France Italy or even North North Egypt uh, sorry the the northern part of uh, Egypt so we know that people were traveling around the ancient world for specific reasons. And some of the round barrows suggest very strongly that it was for, for healing experiences. You know, we always hear about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the summer solstice sunrise and all that, but 
you know, your interpretation of some of these sites as well as what others are saying, it, it, it sounds like a lot of these megalithic sites also uh, served as a hospital. Well, I think they're multifaceted stone mm-hmm. circles. That they're, they're not just for one thing. It, it's a bit like a modern-day church or a medieval church. Uh, a medieval church would have been used for trial. You know, it was a place where justice was uh, administered in the in the medieval period of uh, the southwest of England uh, and the north of England alike. Actually, it was a place where people got married, children got christened. It's a place where you got buried. It's a place where you sang and, and rejoiced. So. There, uh, a church isn't just one thing and I, I think ancient sites were like that, they were multifaceted and used for different things we know that uh, when we come to the later Iron Age of the, uh, the time of uh, the Druids, they were through Pliny the Elder and other recordings such as uh, Julius Caesar were saying that they would go to groves and sacred springs and possibly the stone circles at particular times of the eightfold year which is particular times like the solstices and the equinoxes and the quarter days in between those dates were 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 used and they certainly were recorded in the neolithic period because if you go to ireland for example there's a wonderful ancient site there called uh, the hill of tara it's where all the ancient high kings used to get you know uh made into their kingship and one of the older Neolithic mounds there faces what's called Samhain, that's November the 1st uh, sunrise, and Imbolc, February the 1st. They were two sacred dates in the ancient calendar. So it's about incorporating all these sacred dates and different times and different purposes. Okay. Maria, you mentioned that some of these... Now, visitors to Stonehenge were uh, coming from, you know, almost Italy and uh, northern Africa. Uh, yeah, th- yeah, these are uh, pretty far distances to walk. Uh, um, but it, you know, also read in you know, some other books and. You know, like uh, Gordon Childs, you know, one of his books about uh, you know, these faience uh, beads from Egypt being found in southern England. So it it just sounds like there was also uh, 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 transatlantic. Uh, crossing, or, or at least the uh, channel uh, going on. You know, ha- ha- have you read much about um, you know the mariners and sea uh, routes to England at this time? Well, if you take Stonehenge, for example, and you draw a straight line from Stonehenge to the south coast, you will come to a place called Christchurch. That's its modern day name. But Mm -hmm. it's literally like a lay uh, and it's dead straight. There was a massive Neolithic and Bronze Age port there. 
Yeah. Oh wow. So so you you had a lot of trade uh, from from that area. You you could go to quite a few places from that, and it was it was very uh, well maintained. The, the, the track, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a joke, really, because it was thought many years ago that it was the Romans that made roads. And, you know, no ancient Britain could, uh, could do that. They could raise massive stones, but they couldn't build a road. But now we know that they had very wide roads. From going from Avebury, for example, to Stonehenge, what we call an A road over here which is, you know, probably about 20 metres wide. Well, by Avebury and Stonehenge, there was one 30 metres wide. These are massive, massive roads. That, uh, the infrastructure was, was quite, quite immense. And now we realise they were exporting cattle all over Europe and from Scotland down to places like Stone, Stonehenge and uh, other wild stock uh, as well. So they were, if they were mariners, it's now being stated that they had very versatile, strong boats to carry a lot of cattle on, just like uh, transporting cattle across Europe today. What's going to happen in a few days' time with Brexit? Who knows? We might not get our bacon from Denmark anymore, but... <laughs> But uh, uh, back, back in that day, then they were transporting a lot of different materials. Okay, and I I read in um, Aubrey Burrell's uh, the uh, Stone Circles of the British Isles, uh, where he uh, d- discussed the either the Neolithic. Uh, native people of England, and then you get the uh, Beaker people uh, arriving from the continent. Uh, They're also uh, using ships to uh, navigate the uh, channel. what did this migration of Beaker people add to the to the native uh, population? It changed England uh, for all time because. The beaker, the spread of the beaker culture, as it's now called, came from Europe and it spread quite rapidly. And they brought different burial rites and, and different uh, ideas with them. So the ancient Britons, as, the, as they're called, uh, as I have pointed out before, uh, were quite short. We know that through the leg bones that have been found in the burials. They had longer skulls, more more elongated, uh, and they were living more communally. They didn't have, for example, land division, lots of land division. So they were considered to be a more communal based, probably, uh, as Aubrey Burl points out, a lunar-based uh, society. Then, uh, around about 2500 BC, especially coming down from the Netherlands, DNA for coming out of Oxford is strongly suggesting this, from the Netherlands down, you had much taller people coming through. Some were really quite tall, actually. Uh, and they were coming to settle 
from different parts of Europe, especially the Netherlands, into the uh, south of England. And uh, by the time of 500 years or so after Stonehenge was at its peak and at its glory, it seems the ancient Britons were gone. And, and the new stock of taller, more round-skulled people seemed to replace that. So where did the people go? It doesn't look like it was mass war. I mean, there was conflicts going on, you know, um, probably intertribal conflict uh, to boot. But it could have been something like disease, just like, you know, the Spanish to South America brought disease. The common cold can be terrible if you haven't got that immunity to it. So it was uh-huh. like the whole stock was replaced. But more than that, lifestyle change. So from the moment of uh, the Bronze Age, it was all about the individual, the ego. No longer were people buried together as one, as a community. You had round barrows for one person. You had secondary burials placed in that, but primary for one person with lavish goods saying, this is, this is mine. The land division came in uh, and enclosures were made and this is my land. And massive what's called ranch boundaries were built, which were like earthworks that snaked across the landscape saying, you can't cross this, this is mine. So it was a whole cultural identity that changed and one of which bred kingship land ownership, and all of those things that made our modern-day civilization more egotistical uh, and, and focus on competition rather than cooperation. And basically, this, this is mine and uh, I own this. So you, from that moment onwards in the Bronze Age, it gave birth to the high kings of the Iron Age uh, and, uh, and a kind of tier system in society that unfortunately still exists today in England. We really do have quite a classist uh, system. And that was born in the in the Bronze Age. And, and I always think, what would happen if there was a more of a kind of the ancient Britons uh, survived longer than what they did? Would we have a, a different society that we live in today? That's a good point. Okay, and, and, and so some of these um, uh, books on... You know, uh, prehistoric Britain. Um, you, know, you know, there are discussions about the use of metal appearing at, at about this time, oh, and, and beer. But you know what? You know, what are some of the grave goods like that uh, have or are made from uh, metal? Is this like really uh, fantastic kind of uh, uh, metalworking and artistry? Oh, absolutely. From from the Bronze Age onward, mm. the time that metals were, were introduced. It's actually thought now the Amesbury Archer was uh, a, a metal worker. 
because oh. has a, he has a little anvil with him as well. So his role is being redefined uh, recently. But yes, I mean, some of the, the grave goods around what's called Wessex, that's Stonehenge, that's where you get the most uh, in, in the south of England. Not so much around Avebury, which all the antiquarians noticed, apart from one uh, significant round barrow, which was of, of quite an elderly woman, and she had a massive, uh, beautiful gold work with her. So especially around the Stonehenge area, you did get what's called the elite objects, a beautiful gold work. I mean, for, for example, just to have a look at one, it's called the Bush Barrow around uh, Stonehenge. And uh, it was believed at one point through an antiquarian account that this was a very large man and a very robust man and that he was buried with some beautiful gold artifacts, one which is like a kind of lozenge shape, diamond shape. And it had lots and lots of tiny fragments of uh, decoration studs. In fact, it had 140,000 studs, but each was as fine as a human hair and set into wood at more than 100 per centimeter square. And that this has been looked into recently. And the only people that have had the sharpest eyesight to do that, unless they were using magnification, i.e. like wearing glasses, then it was probably thought that teenagers did this work and they could have even gone blind by the age of 15 or partially sighted by the age of 20, but they must have been looked after by people. So they were creating these elaborate gold uh, goods that are exquisite. They are so, uh, so, so beautiful and they're very unique to the, the Wessex area, but the antiquarians said it was uh, a man because he was large. Now, the antiquarians, uh, such as uh, Sir Richard Colt Hall and William Cunnington, they were a little bit prone to exaggeration anyway, <laughs> especially when they wrote Ancient uh, Wiltshire, Volume 1 and 2 uh, in the 19th, 19th century. But nonetheless, that's even been uh, rethought of. Who says it's a man? Because... You go to a museum like Devizes Museum, which is not far from Stonehenge or Avery, and you can actually see the the um, skeleton. It's, it's a reproduction skeleton of what's called the Bush Barrow uh, find, but they never had the bones. It's, it's make-believe. They have never found one bone from that uh, burial to say whether it was a man or indeed a very tall woman. So again... The modern-day archaeologist is not being so spoon-fed, oh, it must have been a tall man, it could have been a woman, but the finds have all, all but disappeared apart from the gold. I actually think they're in private collections. Okay, uh, that, that's a good point. Uh, that does happen. And, and, and you just mentioned uh, some of the antiquarians had a tendency to exaggerate uh you know what if we look at um say you know mr stukely uh seems like he did lay some of the foundations for uh, modern british archaeology how is or some of his uh, theories st 
still holding up uh, what, three, 300 or so years later uh, you, know, you know what's his how's his legacy now Dr. William Stukeley visited these amazing stone circles mm-hmm. in the 1720s uh, and sort of 30s and 40s, uh, uh, really, uh, and certainly had his books published uh, by them. But he was a Mason. He, he, he was a, a Freemason and he was a Druid. He revived modern day Druidry. So the, all the kind of neo-pagans and neo-Druids today have William Stukeley to thank for that. So he called everything a Druid temple, but we know now it's much, much older than the, than the Iron Age. William Stukeley was great. He recorded a lot of very fine detail, but again, he was prone to looking through his own lens rather than the evidence itself. He so wanted things to be like a serpent temple of Avebury that he drew just two avenues but now we know in all probability Avery had four megalithic avenues not not just two like William Stukeley he also uh, made one part of Avery look like a serpent's head uh, in an ovid shape called the sanctuary amazing powerful place but he, he, he kind of altered the evidence that's a perfect circle but, but nonetheless the sanctuary today it's about a mile and a half from Avebury's massive stone circles. I did some tests there with, with again, with the, the wonderful Rodney Hale using a Geiger counter. And we were measuring the inside, the exact center of that perfect concentric stone circle that today, incidentally, is just marked by concrete markers. Little exists of it. It was totally smashed up in 1723, sadly. So when we were at the center of uh, this part of the monument, we had really high radiation levels, gamma radiation levels. And when you went outside of the stone circle, it would drop back to normal. And then we did quite a few tests at different Mm. times of the year, and we always uh, got that. Uh, So, you know, the ancients may have realized that this was higher in in radiation than uh, anywhere else. And Avebury incorporated three different colors of sarsen stone towards the large stone circles at the bottom. They were a magnificent silver color, like a whitish hue to it, like a silver gray uh, same as the ones at Stonehenge, the very large ones at Stonehenge. But at the sanctuary, they were a blue color. And then you have a long lost stone circle outside of Avebury, just of 12, called the Faulkner Stone Circle, or the Faulkner Ring, as it's uh, sometimes called, that was red. So these visual differences, red, white, and blue, going around uh, the Avebury complex must have been a, a visual wonder to the ancient ancestors. And it's like the, the modern-day Druids have uh, all pointed out, that's the colour of the British flag today. And was that inspired by these prominent colours that you get even in the Scottish recumbent stone circles you'll get like a grey white with a slight blue and then a red jasper colour for example so colour meant a lot in uh, in stone circles but with erosion and and wind and rain, it always rains in England (laughs) that that they become quite weathered looking now Maureen, you just mentioned, uh, you know, colors uh, had a uh, 
significance to the, the people's and you know, I was wondering about you know, the, the, the different um, building materials, like you know, uh, you know, the different stones, and you know, used it, you know, uh, just say Stonehenge and the, the nearby Woodhenge. Um, can, can you help us, you know, understand you know, the, uh, what these different materials uh, uh, signified for the uh, people who are uh, worshiping or you know, uh, being healed at these sites? Well, take Stonehenge, uh, for example. You've got a multitude of different colors going on. They were mm-hmm. highly polished. I mean, highly polished uh, stone and highly polished uh, sarsum is very different to what you see at Avebury and Stonehenge today. And when I took Brian um, uh, Forrester around Avebury and Stonehenge, I was showing him the remnants of a very highly polished sarsum stone, and he couldn't believe what it looked like. It's so different in color, in texture. You could put your face by it and it is smooth as velvet. So when you're looking at those highly polished stones at Stonehenge, the finish would have been a, a, a lot, lot different, actually. And it would have been a very uh, bright color. And it would have reflected uh, its crystal colors with it, you know, its crystal content, rather. So it glint like diamond. And then I showed Brian that as well. And I take guests around and when the sun, <laughs> well, it does actually shine in England, uh, at Avery and places like uh, Stonehenge, that so it glints like a diamond. It, it, it's, it's a very wonder. It's a wondrous thing to behold so you had this beautiful kind of silver color and then you'd walk through to the bluestone circle which we discussed earlier they came from wales again highly polished they would have been a dark blue flexed with uh, felspar white uh, looking like a star spangled sky very smooth to the touch and then you would uh, head towards the altar stone which like I described earlier was green sandstone flexed with red garnet I mean these, these are amazing uh, color combinations surrounded by a massive white pure white pristine chalk bank so, so these are you know big visual statements uh, going mm-hmm. on so, and that was very different to Woodhenge. Woodhenge was a part of three massive timber places. It's not just Woodhenge by itself. There was now uh, uh, Josh Pollard of, I forget which university he's with. He was, I think he's with Bournemouth. He's either with Bournemouth or Reading now. That he's uh, done digs recently and found that Woodhenge was part of a three-phase monument of three three timber circles. And just across the road, there was another two timber circles as well. And these were probably highly painted uh, and, and looking, you know, quite uh, quite colourful. Because when I take people around Avebury and Stonehenge, I'm always picking up ochre. Yeah, red ochre, mm-hmm. golden color ochre, and a brown ochre. And that I show people how easy it is to get the color. And it's a brilliant red. It looks like blood, actually. You can see why the ancients, especially in, in very ancient times, going back 40,000 years or so, would coat all the bones in, in red ochre. It would almost look like the blood was flowing through. And then you get this beautiful, beautiful gold color. And so I, I see a lot of our ancient stones and 
timbers being highly painted with with beautiful colors it was a colorful experience but we're seeing it as quite drab and gray these days and it, it, it takes away its its, its uh, original beauty and we know that they were painting the stones because if we go to one of your favorite sites mark that's orkney <laughs> in uh-huh. scotland i know that you've uh, you've traveled some uh, and been to these uh, sites then they found uh, tiny little paint pots that contained all of the colors so they think that the temples these stone temples that were associated with the stone circles uh, that they were colorful on the inside and they're finding all the long lost paint residue in places so again the inside of the stone temples on Orkney as indeed maybe on Scarabray in their homes were highly painted just like we have preference for colors in our own home today mm. okay so, okay but uh, before we uh, did dovetail into uh, the or- Orkneys. You know, I've, uh, you know, I just see you know, uh, you know, diff- different articles that over the last few years that have uh, been, been written about you know, new earthwork uh, was uh, discovered around uh, Stonehenge and yeah, they say that, you know this one's near. Uh, yeah, this other one was just discovered three weeks ago, and it that whole area just seems like it. Uh, it you know, we just keep discovering ha- how many you know, uh, what different places of worship were just uh, really concentrated in such. Uh, a small area, and yeah, that's seems like a lot of it's being found through the uh, the ground penetrating ra- radar and ge- geosensing. Uh, but uh, yeah, you've also ha- have done research from airplanes. Uh, yeah, can can you explain what you're seeing from that different perspective yeah i was fortunate uh to to know a pilot uh who i used to go flying with uh called uh called busty and uh and he was a very good pilot actually because he could put the plane especially if you if you go in the autumn time for for example that you can start to see the different colors below in the landscape it's what's called parch marks and parch marks can be brought out through a drought for example or through just when the seeds are starting to change you'll get a greener color where there was a ditch infilled for for example so when when you do fly over the ceremonial landscape you you can find you know the potential of a long lost site that you could then you know use lidars being used at the moment from from planes as well so we mm-hmm. can get a build up but you know the the landscape of uh, England isn't just Stonehenge and Avebring. If you head towards the south coast, remember earlier I said Christchurch was a port? Right. Yeah, yeah, on that south coast, where well, uh-huh. you have the highest concentration of ancient sacred sites in the county of Dorset. And there they tend to be sarsen stone as well. Now, oh. when you go up to the, the the north of England, and I'm hitting the megalithic highway next week, <laughs> and... 
and I'm going up to what's called Yorkshire. I'm given a, 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 a part of a conference in the, the, in the north of England at Preston. So anyone in the UK listening, head up to Preston on the 9th and 10th of March uh, to Neil MacDonald's uh, Earth Mysteries conference. And if when you're in uh, Yorkshire, around a place called East Riding, you have megaliths bigger than the giant uh, trilithon at Stonehenge. You have the largest megaliths in the country in York, and they are stunning. They are massive. Uh, one is about sort of 26 feet tall. That's taller than, like I said, Stonehenge. Very well dressed. Uh, weighing about, uh, you know, 25 to, again, 26 uh, tons. That's a ton of foot and placed quite deep into the ground. And today that's called the Redstone Standing Stone, the Redstone Monolith. It's, uh, it's a giant. And it stands in uh, the vicinity of a churchyard today. It's, it's quite shocking because you've got this like, church, this huge huge megalith then you just go down uh, the road from the redstone uh, standing stone and you come to the devil's arrows they're massive massive monoliths and then you come to thornbury henges that's a huge triple henge so it wasn't hmm. just like the south of england it was all across the british isles going from the south coast right the way to orkney literally across to ireland and to the Isle of Man, which is in between uh, England and Ireland, all strewn literally with ancient sites. I think that they were probably, there was an ancient site probably every four or five miles with massive centers like Stonehenge, East Riding, Orkney, Kalanish, and these other wonderful, wonderful places. So I think, you know, England, uh, like Brittany and France, was the megalithic capital, you know, of, of, of the ancient world. Okay, and you know, since, since we're you know, uh, moving north and you know, just, uh, you know, just discussed uh, Yorkshire, uh, yeah, you know, I've read a little bit that you know keeps coming out about this uh, nest of Brodger, and that that was discovered after I had my uh, wonderful week in in the Orkneys, and I, you know, it, it sounds like a really fascinating place. You know, it'd be nice to uh, go back there and. See, uh, you know what's being uh, discovered. Uh, you know, walked over that that area, you know, walking from uh, you know the Broadgirth Stone Circle to the Standing Stones of Stennis, and it just kind of sounds like the Neolithic Vatican was. Located right there, next to, and basically in someone's uh, backyard. <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that's the the amazing thing about archaeology. It just pops up everywhere yeah. and anywhere. But 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 just to, to give the you know the listener a kind of idea about uh, Orkney, you do have this beautiful stone circle, the Ring of Brodgar, uh, and it is uh, quite quite special, and uh, the stones are quite slim and almost kind of a bit of an angle at the top, 
And then you have um, nearby a stone circle at Stennis. And that's, that's really a magical place. And in between, as it were, you have the uh, nest of vodka. But what Orkney has uh, taught us is that the ancients loved their outside uh, activities in stone circles. Celts, even uh, in the Druidic period, loved being outside. So you have the stone circles of the outside, and you have on, on the nest of vodka temple spaces that are undercover. So if Orkney had that, and we followed quite a few of the ideas from Orkney, did Stonehenge have that inner temple spaces? Did Avery have inner temple spaces? So a lot's being reviewed. I think the ancients did have the inner spaces. Uh, and for instance, on the Nessabodka, they were built of stone and uh, had stone slates and like i said earlier they were lavishly painted on the inside and some were very large so it's a bit like lots of buildings there that were used for ceremony and for maybe further things uh, as well so i think that's a model that we can uh, be inspired to find areas around other stone circles and major complexes the indoors and the outdoors so I think there's definitely some at Avebury, and I suspect very much it's going to be up a place called Green Street uh, on the uh, left-hand side. I think that is the inner temple space there. In fact, you mentioned William Stukeley earlier. William Stukeley often talked about the houses of the Druids at Avebury. Well, what's all that about? Are they the remnants of the inner temple spaces he saw? And I think this is where, you know, we need to really reevaluate what an ancient landscape is and like we've been mentioning, and what was it used for? We know that there's places of high radiation that have been integrated we know for example that the avenue that's a massive stone kind of uh processional way that you would enter avebury and stonehenge and places like stanton drew in between these pairs of standing stones well our our geiger counters in the middle would say yes there's more energy in terms of radiation in the middle compared to outside so they were kind of marking these places with uh, with standing stones they knew the energies of the land far far better than what we do today because we have to use machinery how did they know that was there yeah uh when you think of in information like that, it, it just makes you marvel at how in tune uh, the, the Neolithic people were. And in at the, the Nessa Brodger, it is that one of the places where they've uh, been discovering. Uh, uh, paint on some of the stones. I, I, I think they've yeah. been seeing uh, some of the first indications of artwork with chevrons there and some other, like, you know, the squiggly line. Uh, oh, 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 absolutely. The, the chevron, you know, that's on a beaker pottery. And yes, I mean, the inside of these temple spaces were used in ochre. Oh, yeah, mm. reds, ochres, yellow ochre. 
very uh, sacred. And incidentally, ochre as well, when you grind it down, and if you put it all over your skin, it's a natural screen against the sun. And if you put it onto wounds, it will stop bleeding. So it has very high medicinal qualities to it as well as being a, mm. a pretty paint. But it, in the Stonehenge uh, environs, they, they were painting their bodies as well. In Devizes Museum, you have what's called the Shaman of Stonehenge. And in a very elaborate uh, Bronze Age burial, they found uh, a kind of, he was quite a large, a large man, and he had all of these artifacts of boar teeth and little pots containing what they, they analyzed to be tattoo ink. He was uh, a kind of shaman that was given tattoos to people. It's now, I think, because they found the needles. Well, you know I like tattoos, Mark. So <laughs> got Stonehenge on my arm. Uh, so I, I love the I love the idea of our ancient ancestors were were into tattooing around the Stonehenge area. So did they have chev- chevrons uh, on? On, on them. I mean, there's been a few tattoos found, but not, not a great deal. So mainly it could have been just for like the elite people or, or something along those lines. But we need to think about they, they were introducing color. They had very fine fabrics as well. They had combs. Even in the, by the time of the ancient Druids, the men, they would shave them or shave themselves apart from a moustache. Uh, this is what Pliny recorded. So you have a lot of razors found as grave goods. So they were taking away um, body hair. Okay. And uh, the Iceman from found on the uh, was it the Austrian Italian border. Uh, he he was covered in, in tattoos. That's right, and and one interpretation of the placement of the tattoos of that uh, ice ice uh, uh, man who's like kind of mummified, is that it was recording uh, acupuncture places. So it's wow. th- thought that uh, this is a, a paper uh, that was brought out that that was a recording his medical records. Now we we actually think you know that acupuncture comes from traditionally from. China, uh, etc. But it looks like that's an ancient Neolithic skill. So you could question that was it a tattoo, its needle that we were looking at, or from Stonehenge, what were they using? These accurate uh, putting the ink into there, like uh, in the and the uh, Austrians and the Italians, they're they're still arguing all over who actually owns. <laughs> Is it Outsi or Utsi? I can't remember what they they called it now. So, uh, so you know, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a wonder. Yeah, it, it, is that the one? Uh, his, his name's Otzi or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one. Uh, right. And yeah, yeah, I, I had I, I have not heard that acupuncture. I, I would I, I was aware of the tattoos, and you know, just kind of. Uh, just throwing something out is, you know, and, uh, another example of tattoos. But I, I had never heard of the acupuncture, and, and the, you know, there's just another example of all all this uh, focus on uh, you know, these ancient peoples being uh, in, in, in tune to. Uh, yeah, the, these different methods of 
healing, and we're just rediscovering them today. Yeah, exactly. And the, the article about the acupuncture on the uh, Iceman is in British Archaeology. It's online, and I think that was about five or six years ago now uh, that that was brought out, that uh, paper. So you, you'll probably be able to go back in our archives and, uh, and find that. Yeah, so, I mean, okay. what, what, what we're looking at really is an, a highly civilized ancient society throughout Europe. Now, when we look at civilizations, we think of Egypt, we think of the Hindus, but in the British Isles, it seems that they were very highly civilized. In fact, you know, the Romans, I mean, again, we have these archetypal images of them kind of mooching around, either looking like gladiators or in a, in a sheet, <laughs> white sheet. But they were importing fabrics from us. They loved our tartan. They loved our hunting dogs. You know, they wanted our, our tin and all of our resources. So we were had big trade deals by the time of the Bronze Age with, with, the, with the Greeks especially. And we were importing olive oils and wine. No change there for the Brits then, but with their own breweries and um, wine going on. <laughs> And you're just mentioning the high level of sophistication, and the Orkney Island is just really seems like it's such an out of the way place today. But five thousand years ago, it it commanded. Uh, a lot of respect across you know, the British Isles, and uh, you know, I would assume at least uh, had an influence on the continent. And you know, there, there on the Isle of Rouse, you had different uh, 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 levels of the uh, burial chambers. Uh, yeah, those are uh, smaller mounds, and you had some of the long burrows that had uh, multi compartments. And can, can you explain some of those uh, the, the different internal structures of uh, some of these burial mounds? It, it, it's you know very similar to the, the mounds we talk about on our show when you have. Uh, someone like Jason as a guest, it's like no, no two are uh, really alike. No, uh, they are very different on Orkney than they are anywhere else in southern England. They're called Khans, for, for one, like a Khan. So what I want you to uh, imagine the listeners is you've got this massive, massive kind of round, uh, it's called a round barrow, but it's more like a kind of semicircle. And uh, it's a, a place called Maze Howe. Uh, it's inside of uh, the, the, the stone circles we mentioned earlier, like Stennis and, and the Ring of Brodka, the wonderful Ring of Brodka, often calls me. It really, really does, that landscape. But you're inside mine, um, uh, Maze Howe, and you're looking up now, and you're in a huge, beautiful, corbelled, 
uh, dome shape. That's a cobalt roof. It's like a beautiful dome. Now, this is really, really very, very high, about 25 uh, feet or so high. It's believed was the height of that. This is not a burial place. This is a temple space. And archaeologists today, the more modern ones, are calling them uh, shrine tombs. That's the latest kind of bit of a buzzword. It's a shrine yeah. and then a tomb. So when we go into these places, how, do, how did you access them? The beautiful thing about uh, Maze How is you'd have to almost crawl in. You would have to bend down and go down this very narrow passageway as if you have to bow to sacred space. And then you could stand up and see this wonder 25 feet all uh, around you and high uh, uh, probably painted again, just like uh, the other uh, temple spaces we've mentioned on Orkney. So these were incredible places that you would have to literally bow down to, go in and then stand back up in. And to say that they were just used for burial is really robbing them of their, of their truth. And that's why they're called shrine, shrine tombs uh, today. So that's Maze Howe. Uh, it, it's an amazing place. And if anybody ever gets to Orkney, I would highly recommend that you, you book in and you go there. And there's diverse places. So you could go to this massive temple, Neolithic temple. Then you could have gone to the stone circles. Then you could go underground because there's an amazing site there called Minehow. And Minehow was literally only discovered, I think it was in the 1920s or the 1930s, but it wasn't fully excavated till uh, some years after that. Now imagine that there's an opening to the ground, an opening to the underworld, and you go down a spiral staircase of 27 steps, very neat steps, and then there's a kind of big gap and you have to take a leap of faith uh, into your gods into the underworld and then you jump down and you land on this floor space there was a, a commentator on a kind of archaeological show in the UK called Tony Robertson who, who I've worked with uh, on, a, on a TV show as well and he even said he's, a, he's kind of, you know, just a very down-to-earth guy. He's not really into spirituality, other worlds, metaphysics. You know, it's in the here and now. It's archaeology. It's what you can see. It's the evidence. But he said that place changed him. He went down into that kind of other world, underworld, came back up. He felt completely different. So these places are not just above ground like a stone circle they're very deep 25 deep, deep into the ground then they could be these massive temple spaces our ancient ancestors created these diverse monuments for different activities and purposes today when you go to mine how you don't like uh, if hopefully you're never in this position where a plane starts to crash and you have those little lights light up but that's what takes you down to uh, Mine Howe today. So, you know, you're guided down with a bit of uh, light, but it's very dark. And, but the stone masonry is exquisite. Hmm. Uh, that sounds interesting. So, so what, what was going on while you're in the earth? It's, you know, 
sounds like you know return to the womb type imagery. Uh, most definitely, you really do feel the silence within that monument. There is a stillness of the air. There's uh, you can't hear the outside world, so it's a bit like you know. Uh, you can't see anything. You can't hear anything. Uh, they're kind of like probably strong initiation uh, uh, places to change, you know, your consciousness, to shift you uh, out of the ordinary into the extraordinary. So I, I, I think that, you know, there was uh, uh, initiations going on here. But more than that, when you come back out, the, the light is suddenly really intense. And one thing that I noticed when I opened, like, literally my eyes fully when I came out of mine how, and I spent some time down there because it was on a kind of drab, uh, rainy uh, day. It always rains in Scotland. It doesn't it? <laughs> it rain in there. Uh, and, and I came out of that kind of womb uh, experience, opened my eyes, and suddenly everything seemed more colorful, more vivid. The birds seem to sing that little bit louder. So if you're into prophecy, if you're into divination, and you go down into these temple spaces, and then you come back up into the light of day, everything seems more vivid, more alive. And that's, I think, a clue to how the ancients experienced it. And maybe they even did divination after that. Is it, uh, what would the divination following the it's almost like a sensory deprivation uh, 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 tank it, it, like how, how would f following the uh, uh, reawakening of the senses once you leave and then doing the divination how, how would they work together and you know, what would be the impact on the experience or well uh, have you heard of runestones mark yeah you know, uh, i've heard a little bit about them i i'm not an expert on them well they're they're very sort of like viking and and, and saxon mm -hmm. uh, germanic to, to some respect and they're like a stone that has a marking on them so imagine the x like we use in the alphabet today there's right. an x Okay. And that represents partnership, for example. Then you have a diamond uh, shape with, uh, within the runes, and that can represent wholeness and fertility, harvest. Yeah. Well, okay. just recently when I was at uh, Oxford looking through some papers, I think I've discovered the first runic system, and it comes from Stonehenge. It predates the Nordic runes by thousands of years okay and if those same symbols had a similar meaning that they did sort of in the the viking period for for example or runestones then i think that was a divination system and i'm into divination systems i've i've loved the tarot since i was 16 and, and geomancy uh, and uh, I'm very sensitive to, and I, I love the runes. I, I've worn a, a rune ring ever since, uh, uh, well, for, for, for decades, uh, actually, very much into the runes. 
So I think, you know, with, uh, with having that sensory deprivation to come back out into uh, the daylight, or it could have been into the moonlight at a full moon, at an eclipse moon. I mean, you, you know, we don't know uh, at different times because if you come out of the darkness of mine how into moonlight, that, that could really shift uh, your consciousness. And I think that if they did use these type of uh, rune rune markings that have been found out from have been found rather in the Stonehenge environs and in Yorkshire and in Derbyshire and various places of the, the ancient world then maybe they were casting uh, readings maybe a bit like how astrology was uh, originally used uh, astrology when it came to the you know ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia you know Iraq and uh, uh, Iran Babylon mm-hmm was more for the kingship. It was to predict how a war was going to uh, be the outcome, how the outcome of a harvest was going to be. It was kind of more practical. It wasn't about me, 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 me uh, sort of thing as it is today. Everybody wants to know the astrology about themselves. So maybe it was a community thing, divination, uh, back in the Neolithic day. Okay. Cool. And uh, you know, I was just wondering, uh, you just mentioned the um, uh, corbelled uh, uh, roof at Mays uh, How. Uh, you, you have the same thing at uh, New Grange. And uh, you know, I was just wondering if, my, like, Mind How seems like a. Uh, it would be an inverted corbelled roof no it, it's, it's not like, okay. no it, it's like going down a step a steps mm-hmm. then turning at a bit of an angle yeah and going down in, in another direction so to speak down again through like these shafts uh, very deep into the ground that's oh. That's the the design. Now it has been dated to the Iron Age by Orkney archaeologists, but that's because uh, that's what they think. There is actually no evidence, no solid evidence that that was from the Iron Age. It could have been reused by the Druids, for example. But it right. may not necessarily have been built by them. But if we go to the south of uh, England. Uh, in a beautiful part of the uh, uh, English countryside called Cornwall, then you have a very similar, not as dramatic as mine, how underground places, but certainly, you know, uh, initiation chambers that are, are called a fogum, for, for example. And, and Ireland has its own equivalent as well. So we do know that there, as much as you have above ground, you probably had below ground uh, as well. And I, and I think there's a long lost below ground site not far from the West Canet Long Barrow in the Avebury environs. So there's probably an underground chamber there. Uh, same as round Stonehenge. They call it the Wilsford Shaft. You know, that they, they use lots of in- interpretations. It goes right the way down deep into, into the ground. And uh, they thought, first of all, it was a well, but it's not really a well if it, it doesn't hit the water table. <laughs> it's too dry to be okay. a well. I mean, you, you, that's not rocket science. So, so they think that was a, a kind of initiation center 
around uh, based around this underground chamber and I like that idea of the diverse monuments temple spaces stone circles underground initiation chambers there's a lot going on okay and you know, since, since you just brought us um, you know, back from the uh, northern islands to Cornwall in the south um, and we do need to uh, uh, touch on, like, a really uh, fascinating book, The uh, Elongated Skulls of Stonehenge. And you, know, you, you note, um, you, you just took particular interest in the, you know, this one uh Longborough, where uh, one person was found. Can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, sure. the, yeah, that that uh, that one and who, who this person was? Yeah, prior to uh, my research into the Stonehenge environs, and I wrote a little book about it. I'm writing a much bigger book at the moment, actually, uh, as we speak. Well, not literally as we speak now, but uh, <laughs> before we spoke. Uh, yeah, no, nobody really asked the question, what did the ancient people look like? No, nobody asked that question. It, it was presumed they looked like you and I. With some uh, research into the area, uh, which was, you know, uh, because somebody, Mark, reported me for earning too much money to the tax man as if, you know, I just about make a, make a living. But yeah, somebody reported me phoning like thousands and thousands of pounds over my tax bracket. So I was going through a tax audit. Uh, it was a horrible time of my life, actually, because you've got to find receipts like for ages ago. And it's, it's a mass panic. And a friend of mine said, why don't you just, you know, relax a bit more and, and go out into the landscape and do what you do because you're, you know, you're heading for like a breakdown with this tax audit. So I decided to use a very unusual dowsing method that I created, whereas normally in dowsing, you ask a pendulum or a dowsing rod to, you ask it a question, and you get an answer. Is there any underground water here? Yes, no, you, you get the type of thing. So I had a big map of Stonehenge in, uh, in my living room, as you do. And I used this uh, kind of technique for asking the landscape to show me something significant and if if I could find it I'd tell the story and that was a kind of little pact that uh, that I made uh, so to speak and it kept going to this one long barrow on the map so I thought well I'll go out there and I'll visit it just before my kind of appointment with the <laughs> to see this long barrow and uh, then I realized it was the with a bit of research it was the largest long barrow ever created in northwest Europe now normally uh, the long barrows were communal uh, lots of people used to get buried in them especially the, mm -hmm. the skulls long the long bones uh, the the vertebrae and sometimes whole bodies in the flexed position it's like in a crouched or sitting in position that's a quite uh design canon that the ancients loved to bury so it was one or the other now in this particular long barrow uh, the primary burial that's the first burial that went in was one person and that person uh with more research turned out to be a woman and when i went to see her because all the, all the antiquarians would say was you know woman found 
uh, no grave goods, um, and they would give the, the size of the barrow and the dimensions of the height and the ditch and that type of thing, and that was it. So I thought, well, I want to go. I want to find out more about this woman. Uh, who is she? What 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 is she? You know, where did she live, and uh, who is she? And so uh, after much ado, I got into uh, a university. And I visited uh, her, and she had a very, very long skull. And then I realized from that moment on that these people were not like you and I. Their, their skulls went back much, much further, very petite. Uh, and do you know, like children that have milk teeth, they don't have those kind of pointy, like little Dracula teeth that rip out meat? Yeah, I can't think okay. of what, they, what they're called, but but you you know what I mean. In mm-hmm. the IT. elongated skulled people, sorry, they're called eye teeth. Eye teeth. Uh, well, well done. Uh, there's uh, there's at least somebody that uh, knows something about anatomy <laughs> 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 on the show. Thankfully. <laughs> in, uh, well in another word uh, is incisor. Incisor. That's it. That's uh, that's bang on on the money. Oh gosh, well done. Well, the the elongated skulled people didn't have those teeth. It was almost like they were all the same uh, size and width, like children's baby teeth. That's how they hmm. they were described, and it certainly looked like it on the Neolithic queen. Now, I call her a queen, a high queen, because she had such a prestigious burial, being the only person in the largest long barrow of Northwest Europe. She must have been special in some way. She was very short, uh, quite petite, uh, and, you know, she, she lived a life and she could have been one of the people that were involved in the first phase of building Stonehenge Phase 1. She could have been intimately involved with, with that uh, monument, and I, I think uh, she was. And, and her, her barrow was orientated in the same direction as the opening in the northeast at Stonehenge, which points to the midsummer uh, sunrise, or as Aubrey Burl points out, it could have pointed to the moon's most northerly moonrise at midwinter because it's on a kind of axis line that's the, the opposite. And then I discovered she had been murdered. And so I looked to all the other, I thought, wow, that, is this an odd person? Is it the only person with a long skull around Stonehenge in the Neolithic period? And no, when I looked into the other barrows and who had been placed in them, they too all had long skulls. And it looked like they too all had been murdered. But with reevaluation of antiquarian reports it's thought that not all of them were probably murdered it could have been what's called post-excavation damage that made them look like they had been murdered so the percentage is probably much lower than I, I initially thought because you have to kind of be a bit of a Agatha Christie sleuth uh, and read through a lot of reports. As, as a researcher, you know that, Mark. You have to read a report and then another report. And right. uh, be- before you know it, the story changes somewhat uh, further on down the line. But but what I do know is that these people were the very early ancient Britain Neolithic people. And the long-skulled people were throughout uh, uh, the ancient Britain and Europe. 
But here's the strange thing. When we look at places like Avebury Henge, they're built in phases. Tourists come to them and think it's all built at all of the same time. Not so. At places like Avebury, you have massive stones. Uh, one feature is called the Cove by William Stukeley, our Freemason and Druid revival guy. <laughs> well, he called them the Cove Stones, and it's the heaviest megalith in all of uh, Britain. Uh, part of that that cove stone it, it's a wonderful stone it weighs over a hundred uh, tons but that's a neolithic set and it's not a bronze age stone circle so it seems that the shortest people in the british isles were moving the heaviest stone because after that period when it came to the stone circle building phase which was 500 years the ancient long-skulled people marked out all the phase ones of the uh, ancient monuments and then there those beaker people no brexit for the beakers was it <laughs> <laughs> they, they just they just came over. They didn't mind. Have to bring that up with Theresa May, and uh, so they they would then build the stone circles around these existing features nine times out of ten. So the shortest people, the smallest people, were moving the heaviest stone. How? That's that's a wonder in itself. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. So, what are you? learning of the High Queen as you continue to um, investigate her life, the circumstances surrounding uh, that, that time period, her, her, you know, her skeletal remains? Well, what I've uh, found is that in the, St the Stonehenge area, it was a spiritual capital, uh, make mm -hmm. no mistake. But, and the, the, the barrows were different than anywhere else, and the burials were slightly different around Stonehenge. They had, they had their own way of doing things compared to Avebury and elsewhere. And what I found now, that the single burial, which at first was seemed so unique about our Neolithic long-skulled queen, is in fact... Uh, the royal family or the priesthood around Stonehenge all had single burials in very large long mounds, very different to Avebury, Yorkshire, Derbyshire, Ireland, and Scotland. So, so I think there was a, a kind of priesthood uh, or an elite or, or royal uh, family, uh, as it were, that were around the Stonehenge area doing things very, very differently to anywhere else in the country. And they were very sophisticated as well. Uh, we, we have little evidence of the kind of clothes that they wore, combs and just, you know, things that you and I have today. And yet it's a shocking reality when we look to our school textbooks and we're shown what a Neolithic person looks like and they look like a scruff pot all in ghastly kind of animal skins it's just not that it's so so far removed from the truth because they were buried with combs and in very ornate clothing with really fine uh, uh, needlework and, and things so we really have to think very differently to what we're, we're spoon-fed. And the history at Stonehenge goes way, way back the Mesolithic period. 
you know, from about 8,000, 9,000 BC, it's found that they had this beautiful healing spring, a bit like Lourdes in France. And from that spring, you get a particular type of stone, which we call flint. It, it's, it's, you, can, you can make it into knives. It's very, very sharp. But if you take this particular stone out of the sacred water, it turns magenta pink. It turns into this beautiful, beautiful pink stone. And that's been recently discovered around the Stonehenge environs. But sadly... Uh, there's going to be a road and a tunnel built quite close to it. So the uh, nothing seems to stop building in England. Whatever the builders decree, it seems to happen. And all you have to do is, like I've pointed out to people, you don't need to spend millions on a tunnel by Stonehenge. Just sink the existing road. Make the road go down deeper and you'd save, a, save a, uh, quite a bit of uh, money. So the history of Stonehenge is now going back further to, to the Mesolithic period. And I study with a wonderful archaeologist. She's the, the pottery expert of the, the British Isles, actually. She's called Lisa Brown at Oxford. And some of the conclusions that archaeologists have is actually quite astonishing. Well, uh, we presume that the uh, Mesolithic people were hunter-gatherers because they didn't carry pots. That, that's it. That's based on that. It's just such a nonsense. So if they find a pot, they're now going to put the timeline back and call the Neolithic the Mesolithic, and they think they found pots. So I, I, you actually think, you know, where does all this reasoning come from? It just seems such a, such a nonsense in a way. So I think the time date for Stonehenge will be pushed back to about 8,000 BC quite soon. Well, uh, oh, that's a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and you you note that a lot of these uh, graves where the murder victims were located are are, uh, segregated tombs. How how does that play into this whodunit? Well, the, uh, you, you did get some communal ones like Bowles Barrow. Uh, and just so the listener is aware, all of these long barrows are on a military-owned landscape. It's equivalent to like your Area 51. It's a military-owned landscape. And, it, and it's, it's, it's on elevated ground. So the Salisbury Plain, just outside of Stonehenge, suddenly rises up on this plateau. You feel very close to the sky there. It is a very, very magical place. But there are certain areas that nobody can go to. And some of these barrows are in that military, no civilian zone, uh, for, for uh, example. So while some were single burials, you had some that were communal burials uh, n- nonetheless. Uh, and it's very difficult to uh, even go near these places. And half the uh, skulls and uh, long bones have, have been lost. And when, when I asked, you know, my tutor recently, well, how, how are you going to find them? She said, well, the, the sticker could have fallen off the box and you won't find it. And I thought, this is our top universities and stickers can fall off a box and you're not going to find it. Where are the curators uh, logging all of this uh, information? 
it uh, it's it's uh, it's it's crazy but but these people i mean what happened to them Stonehenge was a little bit, like I say, it's a very different place to, to the rest of the world. There's, there's no other stone circle on the British Isles that looks like Stonehenge. It is completely and utterly unique to, to the British Isles. So what was happening there is, uh, is different. And it does seem that there could have been some conflict at some time. But after Stonehenge's heyday of about, say, if, if using orthodox dating, this is from about 2500 BC to 2200 uh, BC, that we don't have any ancient Britons. We just have the uh, beaker, tall, round-skulled people. And like I said earlier, I think disease, uh, as much as uh, a small conflict, it's probably more closer to the truth about what went on. And plus, flat graves have just started to be rediscovered in the, in the Olympic uh, Britain. So you might not have a, a big tomb like Maze Howe or Long Barrow. You have a flat grave with a big sarsen stone on top and what's called a kist going down into the ground, into the chalk bedrock. And chalk is a good preservative of, of material. And... Uh, these people have been found in these uh, flat graves and the flat graves could be anywhere and everywhere it's just potluck if you if you find them so i think the elongated people are everywhere but we haven't found them yet so they could be literally in these flat graves rather than the enigmatic long barrows that they they created for their uh, shrine tombs okay and maria uh, um there seems to be this regicide going on. It, I, I would assume, like, just like all the other uh, regicides we read about in the history books with Charles I and uh, the uh, Louis the what sixteenth at the French Revolution. Um, you know, the peasants must have revolted for some reason. I, what do, do we know? The social, environmental conditions that you know—you know—is this family uh, blamed for something being out of balance? It, it it could have been uh, that uh, it, it really uh, could have because we we think of the ancients always using the sites like Stonehenge, but they they have weird histories. Stone circles they they go in a favor and they go out of favor, and they're they're abandoned and they come back and they're tinkered with and, and uh, they're made kind of fresh and new again. And so it's a ch it's a cha constantly changing uh, what archaeologists call a composite stone circle, composite model. It's added to, taken away. So it does seem that different cultures come along, and then uh, a, a site would be changed somewhat. It's very difficult to to say for sure what happened uh, to to these people. We do know some of them uh, were killed. But where, but that doesn't count. The the, the people in the Longbows does not count for the population. They have to be somewhere. Uh, and normally, if you have some kind of um, you know 
a disease event and you have to dispose of, of bodies quite rapidly, then you often have mass graves. And, and what I feel is that there's probably some very large mass graves uh, scattered around the place uh, where we will find numerous uh, long-skulled people. And the big uh, finds these days are normally through what's called rescue archaeology. That's where you can have a building or a road, and you have to have an archaeological dig, and suddenly they, they find things. But, you know, by the time of the Iron Age, uh, when we go to about 750 BC, for example, that's a rough date for the Iron Age, the climate had dropped a degree. I mean, we, we talk about sudden climate change now, but there was a, a, an event in Iceland, a volcano went off. They used to think it was just Santorini in the Mediterranean, but now... Uh, you know, scientists are really clever. They can get the ash from a particular country, from a particular volcano. Mm -hmm. And it was Mount Hecla that exploded and caused like a bit of a nuclear winter throughout the British Isles. And at that time, the stone circles became completely abandoned. And the lifestyle of the uh, British people changed for all time. The ground below became quite swampy, so they made new ceremonial centers on the top of hills, which are now known to be ceremonial centers. They used to be called hill forts in old books, but mm -hmm. now we know some of them were, you know, they would be not very good to be defensive. In fact, they only uh, had became uh, defensive rather when the Romans were. Uh, coming in to uh, occupy Great, uh, Great Britain. So, uh, well, England at the, at the very least. So the, the whole kind of culture w was changing predominantly through climate change. So if we're going through climate change today, is our culture going to change? Are we going to have to adapt differently like our ancient ancestors did? And if you're into spirituality, could we say, for example, that the, the karmic point of that, are we the kind of, you know, at this karmic point where we were responsible for that and therefore have to try and make good? So I, I think there's a kind of very deep spiritual thing to these transitional uh, changes that happen to these, uh, to these uh, wonderful uh, ancestors of ours. And that's when you had the, the Druids come into their power in the Iron Age, where they were building these brand new ceremonial centers on top of uh, hills and, and in the valley floors as well. So that was a huge cultural change up until the time of the, uh, of the Roman invasion. Uh, and sadly, uh, you know, the genocide was c committed against the Druids uh, because of the Roman invasion. Okay, and, and so some of those uh, hill forts are uh, Maiden Castle, and you know, we kind of worked a little bit on a little uh, uh, project there, where you know, you were help, uh, gave me permission to use one of your aerial photos of Maiden. Maiden Castle, and that, that, that's really, um, really fantastic uh, place with all the defensive uh, walls, and, and and you get the South Cadbury Hill Fort with the uh, later Arthurian legends grafted onto the, the Neolithic um, 
uh, yeah. Hill Forts. Uh, it's a, and you know, probably a lot of people are familiar with uh, the Glastonbury Tour. So all, all you know, those those you know, are just three of numerous examples in that a- area where um, you know uh, we do have this uh, change in ceremonial sites being uh, up on hilltops. So. Uh, you know, be, because of the um, uh, change in the climate and the water levels, um, and hopefully we're going to have the uh, guest on soon who uh, will be discussing that in uh, the southeastern American states. Uh, but it, it, you know, you know, what was the change? Of this, uh, the cultural change resulting from this regicide. Uh, what in the in the Iron Age? Yes, with your Neolithic. Yeah, in the, the Neolithic. Well, it was uh, you know again, it's 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 cultural influences, uh, a change in people's uh, ideas of living. Mm-hmm. So, like, like I said earlier, the, the crux of the matter is they were communal people. That's very important. A very lunar-based, uh, if we're to believe Burl's research, which I think is pretty on the on the mark, then a lot of the barrows are more lunar-orientated than solar. And phase one of Stonehenge was lunar as well. It was very accurate lo- uh, lunar uh, temple. So, so these people were living together. Now, when we look at the houses, or we presume uh, uh, Neolithic houses, and we look to places like Skara Bray on Orkney, and we look to Durrington Walls, which Durrington Walls is actually Bronze Age, but if we use the kind of template of Skara Bray, the houses seem to be quite the same size. You know, they, they, they did, they've had the same template, and you would live mm. in a particular uh, uh, size, so there doesn't seem to be much hierarchy to a certain degree uh, mm. in there. Now, when it came to the uh, the Bronze Age, that that changed dramatically, changed very, very dramatically. So now you're at Durrington Walls near Stonehenge, where the builders of Stonehenge and the workmen and the hierarchy lived. You had massive houses like mansions, where presumably. The elites lived. It was thought, actually, that first these were temples, but no, there there was domestic evidence for for the the house usage. So you did have a, a big class system uh, come into being, and like I said earlier, the land was being divided up in England. You had field systems. You had massive ditch boundaries, ranch boundaries. They're, they're called actually, and and what was called bank uh, barrows. They go on for quite uh, some distance and saying, you can't come over here. This this is my land. And you had a lot of uh, the reuse of causeway enclosures for cattle and things and more intense uh, agriculture. So uh, a way of life, uh, a communal way of life was dying with the long-skulled people and an ego-based competitive society 
uh, was uh, coming into being. And it's also uh, thought and that during the Neolithic, it was, you know, women had a very strong role. Women have always had a very strong role, actually, in, in, the, in the British Isles. But um, more so probably in the Neolithic, because even when it came to the burials of the Bronze Age, women would be more the head to the west and men to head the east. The, the, the orientation of where you were placed would decree whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, so the, the, it's believed that the women's status dipped down a little bit uh, in, the, uh, in the Bronze Age, but certainly we're talking about the Iron Age and the Druids. By the time of the Iron Age, women were back on track with wonderful queens like Boudicca, for example, who, who took on the Romans. So, but if we go back to, 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 the, to the Neolithic, it seems that there's quite, quite a few prestigious female burials around Stonehenge. Now, Professor Michael Parker Pearson of the Riverside Project of University College London, UCL, recently re-excavated what's called an Aubrey Hole. It's what's believed to have been the first phase of Stonehenge, uh, housing originally 56 beautiful blue stones, creating a massive stone circle. But anyway, they're re-digging one of the holes that the, a stone once stood in, basically. And through uh, the analysis uh, in, in labs uh, of who were these people that were placed into these cremation pits, uh, if you like. And it was the majority were women in, in phase one at Stonehenge. So I see a very strong uh, female presence. Now, if you look to Avebury Henge and you look for the most prestigious burial, at Avebury. It was a bit later than the actual building of the, the stone circle, admittedly, but there's a very short, they often call her a dwarf, but she's not a dwarf at all. She's like four foot, uh, four foot eight. Uh, a burial place right in the Henge Bank, as if looking at you whenever you go to, to Avebury. So, so women were placed in these stone circles in very prestigious places. So I see that as feminine power. I see that as a, a woman taking on a very strong role at these ancient sites and maybe even helped with the design of these places. Because if you're, if you're designing something for a nighttime ceremony, which was probably the case at Stonehenge Phase 1, uh, the moon has always been seen throughout the ancient world as the kind of feminine aspect of creation, whereas, you know, the sun quite often is seen as the, uh, the male, masculine aspect of creation. And even to the Nordics, uh, the, the sun and the moon were, were, were seen that way, and in Rome and Greece alike. So we can say that's a, a European way of looking at things. So uh, with, with these uh, ceremonies towards the moon, that, again, that's pointing to feminine, feminine power. Uh, and that's uh, the same for Avery. You've got particular standing stones aligned to the moon's most northerly moonrise. And that is majestic to see at Avebury Henge. And I'm one of the few people uh, to have ever photographed the moon's most northerly rise at Avebury. And it was amazing when that moonrise came up. There was clear skies. That's unusual for the winter. <laughs> and I actually got a photograph. So, 
so it was wonderful. But when the, that moon aligns with those stones, you really get a sense of connection to your ancestors because that's what they saw. Okay. And, and Maureen, we have uh, 10 minutes left, unfortunately, but uh, you are coming uh, back in what, a- April and May, I think. And but you know, we do need to uh, give you time to uh, uh, you know, t- tell people where they can get your elongated skulls of Stonehenge book. Your uh, you have um, uh, yeah yeah and, yeah and uh, you know if people enjoyed uh, your lecture today, you're going to be on uh, coast to coast. Uh, over this weekend? That's right. Uh, okay. Sunday morning, my time, but uh, earlier in, in the day, uh, a, a USA time. But uh, I am coming to the USA to uh, speak at Contact in the Desert. And only last week, I got asked by Earthkeeper James Tiburon to come to the States in November to lecture again uh, there. So I should be uh, in the States a couple of times. So it would be great to connect with uh, with listeners. But you can find out uh, about my books at variance.co.uk. And that's A-V-E-B-U-R-Y, Avebury. But I love the way Americans say Avebury. <laughs> but you say tomato, <laughs> I say tomato. Uh, and for my courses on Dowson and the esoteric arts, please go to esotericcollege.com. Okay. And uh, where, where is the conference in November? That's in, uh, oh gosh, it's Little Rock in Arkansas. Maybe, does, yep. yeah, Arkansas. And I think, I think it's called uh, Little Rock. And I, I, was, I was a guide for... James Tiburon around Stonehenge and Avebury maybe about five years ago maybe a bit longer I don't know where time uh, time goes and so he's uh, he said yes he'd love to have me over for his conference um, and I think it's November the 23rd and 24th or the 25th and 20, 26th it's around around that time but but James is very knowledgeable he's a geologist and uh, he also is a very spiritual person as well a lovely chap okay and the appearance of contact in the desert is you know something we're going to develop um, when when you're a guest with us in May, but uh, yeah, that's actually a huge, uh, prestigious uh, conference, and that is uh, early June, I think. That, is that, that's you, right. It's uh, it's uh, May the 31st uh, to uh, for about three or four days there after at contact uh, in the desert i think it's at india wells and and what i'm hoping to do as well mark is i want to uh, uh, visit quite a few of the ancient sites in arizona when i'm over there i'm going to be doing what we call in the uk a recce going there and having a look at the energies and if there's any ley lines there and, and that sort of thing doing a recce mm-hmm. 
and uh, and then I hope uh, to come to Ohio at some point to do a recce with you to uh, have a look at some of your wonderful uh, ancient sites there, as well as places in New England. So I feel a good connection to uh, the United States of America. And let's, uh, let's think about the sacred sites and uh, make, um, make it all sacred again. Yeah, uh, you know, we can do that. <laughs> and um, it, it would it would just be terrific uh, you know, for you to, just, you know, ha- have a return trip to uh, the states and you know, you know, incorporate more of what's here with your uh, research and just get a, you know, hopefully you can c- come back in December for a follow-up and, you know, you know, synthesize all, all your experiences with the prehistory on both sides of the Atlantic. That's right, and I'm already uh, seeing very uh, amazing things. I've been I've been watching quite a few, you know, presentations on, for example, um, Stone America, Stonehenge on on Mystery Hill, and I've I've watched uh, some authors go around saying, "Why is this? Why is that?" And I can just see exactly the inspiration of that, but where from in the British Isles. And, and they're, they're musing over it, saying, you know, why is that like that? Why is that like that? And I could say, well, that's like that there. This is like this here. This is like that's there, etc. And bring a whole new interpretation for America's Stonehenge. Uh, and I can't wait to do that. Yeah, it's it, it is uh, you know, the you know, the possibility of transatlantic crossings is uh, fascinating. And you know, uh, you know, Silbury Hill and so, you know, like the Grave Creek Mound are you know, one of the largest, some of the uh, larger mounds in the uh, Ohio Valley. Just it seems like there's almost a similar pattern with a henge, uh, just mammoth size. It just really makes you uh, wonder about. What uh, Dr. Child uh, wrote about with the megalithic mariners going up and down the British coast, but did did they turn it uh, turn their ships to the west and make it over here? It's uh, fascinating, and I'm I'm sure you're one of the people who can uh, make a convincing point about that. Uh, and it has been found. Uh... Uh, which was uh, known in the America's uh, Stonehenge of the, what we say is the Oum writing. Uh, you get Oum huh? script. Uh, it's often people often say Ogham, but it's actually Oum, like you owe money. <laughs> That's how you pronounce it. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, there's some very uh, Celtic clues. Put it like that. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm interested in learning more, and you know, we're down to you know, three minutes or so. Um, is there anything else you want to cover? Do you want to uh, uh, wait till the, the next time? 
Well, yeah, yeah. just you know, have a look at have a look at my website, theaveryexperience.co.uk and esotericcollege.com, and uh, have a look at my shops there. And uh, and yes, and uh, I'm always researching and trying to uncover new things. And we'll be heading for America to uh, have a look at some of your unsolved uh, megalithic mysteries, and I will enjoy that. Yeah. It, uh, what, what's the one thing that would fill in the gap in British archaeology that? you think needs to be found an intelligent person <laughs> <laughs> mark on that one it's time to say good night <laughs> okay well uh, i want to thank the rotherham uh, listeners again for uh you know, jo- joining us uh tonight and uh th- thank you maria uh yeah you know, we're looking forward to having you return and good luck with uh being on R- Richard's show over the weekend on coast and you know just appreciate it, it i hope everyone it, it was bound to have learned something fascinating and thank you barbara for uh producing a great show ah well yeah, thank you barbara it, it couldn't have been ha- it could not have happened without the two of you so Thank you, everybody, and tune in again. We'll be bringing you back more excitement, more adventure, and more enlightenment in the weeks and months and years to come. Good night.